I don't know if the landlord groups love that I've described it as failing upward, but that is what's happened here. Sort of from day one, the idea was to take this issue to the Supreme Court. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So today, Susanna, you're going to be one of our experts. We'll be chatting a little later on about rent stabilization in New York City. That's right. So there's some state legislation on the board that seeks to affect this critical package of legislation that passed in 2019, known as the 2019 rent law, that really affected how landlords are able to raise rents in stabilized apartments. And then last week, you mentioned that a number of landlord groups had petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to review the state's 2019 rent stabilization law. So that's sort of another way into affecting the same package of laws. I'm going to be bringing on TRD senior reporter Catherine Brenzel to chat about that case a little later on. And we're also touching on the highly anticipated Rent Guidelines Board hearing that's coming up um, at the end of June. And there's been some drama around that. It's also worth noting that there's been a lot of discussion around the health of rent-stabilized portfolios and some concerns that landlords might not be collecting enough rent from these properties to pay off their debt service. That's because some have floating rate loans, which have obviously become more expensive to pay off given how rates have increased over the last year. Right. Yeah, that's another space where distress is looming. So we'll touch on that a bit, too. So first, the news. Sam Zell has died at 81. He was the founder of Equity Residential and had amassed a portfolio of almost 600 office buildings and more than $30 billion worth of apartments. He was a real power player in the industry. Yeah. Blackstone CEO John Gray told The Real Deal that, quote, Sam was a legend in every way, a brilliant investor, entrepreneur, and business builder. He also had the nickname Grave Dancer as he was known for picking up distressed assets for cheap. He wrote this article in 1982 that outlined the strategy. He called it, quote, a guide to the risky art of resurrecting dead properties. As has been the case for the past few months, we've had a lot of distress news this week. First, SL Green Realty and Renata Realty Trust are planning large-scale sales of office properties this year as they're focused on trying to boost their balance sheets. Obviously, it's not the best time to be selling an office building. Right. We don't envy them. Um, Take this one figure from Aerial Property Advisors. Office sales in New York City totaled just $470 million in the first quarter. That's down 85% from $3 billion a year ago. Wow, a staggering drop. So how much are these firms planning to sell, respectively? Taking SL Green first, the firm is planning to sell $2.4 billion worth of property, including a 75% stake in 245 Park Avenue and a joint venture interest in one Vanderbilt. Well, one Vanderbilt is like one of their trophy properties. Yeah. In 2021, SL Green was asking a record $322 per square foot in rent at the building. Wow. And Vornado? Yeah, it's declined to say which buildings it plans to sell, but it has said it will look to sell a mix of retail and office. So TBD on that one. While we're on the topic of distress, though, Isabella, you had another story about Brookfield in L.A., the gift that keeps on giving. Yes. Yeah, it really it's been, you know, probably four months now um, that we've been writing about Brookfield's issues in downtown L.A., Um, The company is now delinquent on a $275 million loan connected to its EY Plaza in downtown L.A. The loan is now being specially serviced. 
And as we've spoken about before, this is not their first run-in with distress in downtown L.A. No. So in February, as I mentioned, they defaulted on $784 million in loans connected to two other buildings, first the gas company tower and then 777 tower. Brookfield is really struggling with trying to fill its office buildings in downtown L.A. It's struggling with pretty stagnant vacancy there. And rising rates have just made its debt more expensive. And on to our third story about distress. Investors are forming funds to buy up distressed properties in Texas. And reporter Joe Lovinger had that story. It's interesting to me that Texas isn't totally insulated from distress. We know that downtown Austin and Dallas and Houston, they all saw a ton of demand for office space in the pandemic. And multifamily rents saw double-digit increases year over year across the state. Yeah, but as Joe pointed out, we're starting to see some signs of distress there, and a few companies have raised nine-figure funds to target commercial assets with problems. One of those is Bradford Companies. They've already raised $100 million, which isn't enough for a soaring office tower, but enough to fund some smaller deals. Three Pillars Capital, which is based in Houston, it also raised $300 million from high net worth investors and family offices to target distressed multifamily properties in the Sun Belt. So there's actually a lot of activity down there. On to residential. We touched on this a few weeks ago, but people are still paying extremely high prices for huge estates in Palm Beach. Fashion designer Tom Ford is trading houses with Brian Kosoy. He's the CEO of West Palm Beach-based Sterling Organization. And that deal is valued at more than $100 million. And Ford just bought the house in December, right? It hasn't been that long. Yeah, he bought it for $51 million in December. It was a record for a non-waterfront property in Palm Beach. It sits on about an acre and includes a 10,000-square-foot mansion and a pool. So the deal is kind of strange. We still need to see how much property sold for individually. But together, we know that they were valued at at least $100 million. So today we're pulling back the curtain on one of the hottest button issues in New York real estate over the past several years, a package of legislation that critically changed how landlords are able to increase rents on stabilized units. Right. So the official name is the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019, but that's a mouthful. So we'll be referring to it as the 2019 rent law. So taking a look at the last four years, what would you say are the biggest ways this law has impacted landlords and tenants? And I guess, where are we still seeing shockwaves? Yeah, so there are three key reverberations, to extend the metaphor, that I want to highlight. First, as you said, the law basically capped landlords' ability to raise the rent on stabilized units by any means besides this vote that's held every year. Typically, every June, the Rent Guidelines Board, which the mayor appoints, decides how much to adjust rents on stabilized apartments. Before the rent law passed, there were other ways to boost rents in an apartment. So landlords could renovate a unit and then put in for a rent hike to recoup some of that expense. But the law basically put a hard cap on any type of meaningful increase that landlords are allowed. So that leaves them paying for big renovations out of pocket, um, and landlords can own thousands of units. So they're claiming that shouldering those costs is just financially unfeasible. And as a result, many are keeping these units that are in need of repairs off the market. And we should underscore that those empty units are a huge deal in New York. We're grappling with a housing crisis nationwide. But the dearth of available apartments is especially acute in New York, right, where homelessness last year reached levels last seen during the Great Depression. 
Yeah. And at the same time, rents continue to break records. Last month, the median rent reached a new high in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens. And that's because there isn't enough supply. So vacant apartments, that's a big deal. So have landlords tried to affect the law in any way, like roll it back? What's happening there? Yeah, there has been some momentum. So last week, the state legislature introduced a bill that would allow some landlords to raise rents. And that bill instantly drew the attention of tenant advocates and criticism toward the Democrats who supported it. So there's some drama brewing there. Yeah, it sounds like it. Okay, so what's number two then? Okay, item number two is the other path that landlords have taken to affect the law, and that's through the court system. So as soon as the legislation passed in June 2019, owners lawyered up and they brought at least five different lawsuits challenging the law. So a bunch of those were thrown out by lower courts, but one, which was brought by two big landlord groups, is still alive and landlords are gunning for it to be heard by the Supreme Court. There are high hopes there among owners, but getting a case before the Supreme Court is like no easy feat at all because the Supreme Court is highly selective with the number of cases it takes every year. Okay. And then number three. So number three is the annual rent guidelines board hearing for those who celebrate. I touched on this earlier. Basically, there's this group of nine members that votes every year on how much landlords can raise the rent if at all. It's essentially the only path for owners to meaningfully boost their revenue. So that vote is always closely watched. But this year, meetings leading up to the vote have been especially charged, right? I actually spoke about this last week. There was some, you know, chanting and protesting happening at one of the preliminary votes, right? Yeah, yeah. So we saw protests at the preliminary hearing earlier this month, um, and those actually landed on Mayor Eric Adams' radar, too. And the final vote is in just a month. So landlords and tenants are each pushing hard for a rent adjustment that would work for them. Tenants obviously don't want any raise. Um, And most likely the outcome will be that no one goes home happy. Okay, so we've got three items on our agenda. Let's address them chronologically. So why don't we first dig into what owners are hoping for with the Supreme Court suit? Because that was filed immediately after the rent law passed. Sure. So I'm going to bring in... Catherine Brenzel, who's been reporting on this with me for the past couple of years to assist. Hi, Katie. Hey, Susie. So we know right after the rent law passed, landlords started drafting these lawsuits to challenge the legislation. So let's focus on the lawsuit that still has legs, which was filed by CHIP and the Rent Stabilization Association. That suit alleged that the rent law was unconstitutional because it violated two amendments, the 5th and the 14th. Can you explain what landlords have argued in that suit? Sure. So the lawsuit um, is challenging New York's rent stabilization law, which, among other things, uh, limits the annual rent increases on nearly one million apartments in New York City. Um, The lawsuit you're talking about argues that the law violates the takings clause in the Fifth Amendment, um, which bars the government from seizing property without properly compensating um, property owners. Um, The idea here is that landlords are prevented from doing what they like with these properties. For example, the law limits under what circumstances a tenant can be evicted. It guarantees a lease renewal. It grants succession rights to relatives. It limits how many units um, can be taken over for a landlord's personal use. You get the idea. Um, 
As for the 14th Amendment, the lawsuit alleges that the rent law violates the due process clause um, by depriving owners of their property. And when we're talking about the due process clause here, we're actually sort of talking about a broader interpretation of the clause than sort of what you would typically think of. So typically you'd hear due process and think, you know, right to your say in a court of law if you're accused of something. Um, here, what we're talking about is government interference without a um, significant reason for the interference. So the idea is that landlords are arguing the state government is interfering in their right to own property um, without a good enough reason to. And, and the idea is they argue that the rent law, while it's supposed to um, address the housing crisis in New York, they say it, it doesn't actually do that. It's not it's an affordable housing program in, in basically name only is is their argument. So we know that landlords have lost that case in two separate courts already. So can you explain what happened there and then how the suit is still alive? Yeah. So the lawsuit was filed in July 2019, which was actually just a month after the rent law was was approved by the state legislature. Um, that district court dismissed the lawsuit in 2020. Um, and the landlords then appealed to the Second Circuit Court. Um, that court also ruled against the landlords in February, basically ruling, you know, similarly as the lower courts, that the state has pretty broad authority to regulate rents without violating the Constitution. But the funny thing about this is that landlords have said those losses were sort of baked into their plan the whole time. You actually characterized it as failing upwards in a story you wrote recently, because the idea here is that if a suit loses in a district court, so a lower court, the plaintiff can appeal it. It goes to the Second Circuit. If the Second Circuit rules against it, the plaintiff can then try and bring the suit to the Supreme Court. So that's the plan here, right? Right. Yeah. I don't I don't know if the landlord groups love that I've described it as failing upward, but that is that is what what you know what's happened here. Sort of from day one, the idea was to take this issue to the Supreme Court. So earlier this month, RSA and CHIP filed a petition asking the US Supreme Court to um, consider their challenge to the, the rent stabilization law. Gotcha. This is a long shot though, because we know that the Supreme Court only takes a fraction of the cases that arrive at its doorstep every year. It's like 100 to 150 out of 7,000. Um, so what chance do landlords think they have of being heard? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the fact that there's a conservative majority in the court could play in their favor. Um, Landlord groups have actually pointed to a decision from 2021 by this court as something that should betray their their case. Um, in that 2021 decision, the conservative majority deemed a California law unconstitutional um, because it required employers to allow union organizers onto their property for up to three hours a day. Um, the court found that that represented an unlawful taking. Um, and basically, landlords are saying, like, if you think that's a taking, like, have we got a rent law for you? Um, they're, you know, they're saying, like, you know, this the state's rent law goes much further in depriving, you know, property owners of 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 their property. Um, so, you know, that said, I I think you know this court has previously turned down the chance to take up this this issue, the issue of of rent control. Um, you know, it is a decision, a, a case that could have really um, broad implications for, you know, outside of New York. So in that sense, it is the kind of case that, you know, potentially the court would take up, but, you know, we'll see. Right. Do we have any idea of when the Supreme Court might decide whether they're going to take the case or not? Like, would it be something that would have to happen this year or could it be next year? 
Um, so, I mean, it typically, my understanding is that it takes an average of six weeks for the court to deliberate on a petition. Um, but the court it does have a summer break starting in June, um, and they return in um, October. So, I think probably sometime in early fall we should have an idea if this is going to be uh, taken up. But we'll see. Okay, so that's one path to challenging the laws. But landlords are also hedging their bets in a way with another attack plan, this one through legislation. Yeah? Right. So earlier this month, the state legislature in Albany introduced this bill that would let landlords with vacant units apply for a rent reset. Okay, so two questions here. First, what is a rent reset and why is that significant? Okay, so short answer on the rent reset, and then I'll dive in deeper later. A rent reset would let owners raise rents in a vacant apartment where the tenant had lived there for at least 10 years. The significance for owners is huge. As we mentioned earlier, when a rent-stabilized unit empties out, the owner has to get that apartment back in market-ready shape so they can lease it to a new tenant, right? And in a market-rate apartment where a tenant lived for, like, say, a year, three years, those repairs are usually minimal. It's like patching a few holes or slapping on another layer of paint, and then they relist it. But in a rent-stabilized unit, tenants stay for way longer. Um, They're entitled to automatic lease renewals, and they can also pass apartments down to their children or their next of kin. So when a unit comes to market, the tenant is often vacating after a really long time. Like, it's common that apartments rent-stabilized apartments only become vacant after a tenant dies and there's no relative around to pass it to. So the renovations, like as you can imagine, are much more intensive than in a typical unit. Landlords say they'll often have to spend tens of thousands to get the unit back into good shape. And because they can't raise rents beyond those minimal increases the board approves, they say there's no way to break even on that investment. And rents as they stand, can't cover most repairs because they're so low. How low are we talking? I've seen them as low as $600 on the farthest end of the spectrum. Maybe some apartments are even lower. Others are in like the low thousands or so. Very low. Um, Okay, so back to what the rent reset bill would do. Right. So that would let landlords raise rents to a rate in line with other stabilized units in the area. And that could be a big bump for some of these owners because – Some units are stabilized at market rate. This is a little nitty gritty, but before the rent law changed, owners could hike rents significantly after renovating, as we mentioned, but others are stabilized at market rate because they were built as part of a tax program. So anyway, it would it would be meaningful to landlords. Okay, so to recap, the thought is if owners can boost rents, then they can afford to make these improvements and then these units can come back to the market. Yes. And how many are vacant right now? Do we have a ballpark figure? Yeah, so there are conflicting estimates depending on which agency does the counting, but we believe it's somewhere between 20,000 and 60,000. That's huge. Okay, and I know that there was this pushback when this bill was introduced. So what's the issue there? Right, so tenant advocates, as you might imagine, don't like this legislation. They view it as unraveling the protections the 2019 rent law put into place. Some have said the law could create an incentive for landlords to push tenants out. And that's a big deal because illegal evictions and harassment, those were the problems that the rent law was built to address. 
One sort of insidious tactic owners used before 2019 would be to fudge the numbers on how much they'd spent on improvements so they could raise the rent above a certain threshold, and then they would be able to pull the unit from stabilization, so charge a market rate for it. Would that be possible under this law? No. So units stay stabilized no matter what, but the fear is landlords might push out tenants by harassment or illegal eviction. So they'd have a vacancy on their hands and then they could raise the rents through that. Are there any guardrails in place against that? Yeah, there's a few. So a tenant has to have lived in an apartment for a decade before moving out for the landlord to even be able to apply for a rent increase. And then any owner who's been found to have harassed or evicted tenants is barred from raising rents in the associated apartment for three years. Okay, so have tenant advocates actually, you know, done anything to stop this legislation from going forward? They have. So they have pushed at least six sponsors of the bill to withdraw their support. Um, But CHIP, which is the organization that really kicked off the idea for the bill, it said those law sponsors are small potatoes. It's not really that big of a deal. And the group is still gathering support for the bill. But tenant advocates are also adamant that they can push more sponsors to drop out. Okay, so now it looks like we've arrived at item number three, the Rent Guidelines Board Hearing. Remind us of how this works. So every May or so, a board of nine representatives, five for the public, two for landlords, two for tenants, has this preliminary vote on how much to raise rents in stabilized apartments. The board looks at a bunch of data and it makes its own estimates of what an appropriate adjustment would be. But the thing is that data is always a little bit old. So there's a critique that it doesn't accurately gauge the temperature of the current market and what tenants or landlords need. So what did the board initially recommend this year? The board actually put a lot of weight on landlord expenses this year because they showed up in the data, which wasn't necessarily the case last year or the year before. So the board recommended hikes as high as 8.5% on one-year leases, and that's huge. If those were passed, if that was passed, it would be the largest rent hike in 30 years. Wow. Yeah. 8.5% is definitely hefty. I have an idea of why the vote would be contentious, but can you spell it out? Naturally, there's this tension built into the vote because there's tension built into the tenant-landlord relationship. Tenants never want higher rents. Landlords typically want more revenue. But in the past few years, we've seen a few rent freezes during the pandemic. So owners got no rent hikes. And meanwhile, expenses have gone up drastically. Most recently, that was the result of inflation and higher rates on mortgages for some owners. But even before that, we've seen the price of utilities such as gas and electricity skyrocket. Insurance has gone up an incredible amount, too. And during the pandemic, a lot of people moved out of the city. Others stopped paying their rent. So like, if you package that all together, you have landlords hurting for revenue for years at this point. And what's the tenant side argument here? Yeah. um, Tenants are like, look, we're not doing great either. We lost our jobs during COVID. We struggled to pay rent then. Now we're grappling with inflation and the threat of a recession that could lead to layoffs. And so like, we're not in great shape to shoulder a rent hike either. So at the most recent hearing, all of this kind of came to a head. Tenants, advocates, and some electeds jumped on stage and they started protesting around the board members, basically disrupting the meeting. Brief 
And after that disruption, board chair Nestor Davidson wrote this letter to the mayor being like, look, we had safety concerns after this. This is a public forum. It needs to be able to operate that way. And we want you to be aware of what happened. And did the mayor respond? Yeah, his staff said, you know, acknowledged that they had received the letter, basically. They said they were happy to have been alerted and, you know, they'd keep an eye on things. Okay. Doesn't sound very committal there. (laughs) No. So the final vote is in June. What do you expect to see happen there? Right. So historically, the preliminary vote, which is a range that the rent hike would fall within, sets the stage for the final number. So this year, the board approved a 2 to 5% hike. It would make sense that we would get a 3.5% rent bump or something along those lines. Landlords are going to be upset if that's how things pan out. They saw profits even as far back as 2021 fall by 9.1%, which is the most since 1990. So they're hurting, according to the data. But Tenants have asked for a freeze or a rent rollback in some cases. So same story on that side. Last year, we actually saw calls for reforms of how this vote actually functions. Both sides are just really fed up with the process. The town halls that happen leading up to the vote are supposed to be forums that allow the public to speak their piece and presumably influence members. But one member said last year's meetings were just like pageantry. Members weren't even listening. And a tenant member said it seemed that the board was just a vehicle for the city to make sure real estate, which is a big donor to city government, gets enough money. But landlords think the board is broken, too, and that stems from the thought that increases are based on old data. They don't cover operating costs. So, yeah, there's there's discontent on both sides. So a lot to look forward to and a lot, you know, that we'll continue to cover. Yeah, yeah. Typically, I wouldn't recommend watching the vote because it's pretty dry, but this year could be different. So, you know, tune in June 21st. Mark your calendars. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week for Memorial Day, we're going to be looking at how Palm Beach has remained an incredibly hot market for ultra-luxe purchases. Tune in then. <laughs>